series is all about exposing the myths of perfect families. We're going to talk about the pressures of being a kid, right? When's the last time you went to church and they talked about the pressures of being a kid? We get that next week. Jerry's going to talk about that. What, what it's like and the pressures that, that culture puts on you, the pressure that sometimes parents put on you to be a certain way, to act a certain way. And if you don't fit into a mold, then somehow you've missed the mark. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the challenges of parenthood. Any parents here that would say that there are challenges to being a parent? Yes, we'd all agree uh, with that. It's a blessing, and yet it is a challenge. Two weeks, we're going to talk about that. And yet, in three weeks, we're going to talk about the joy and yet the complexities of marriage. I love being married. It is joyful. I live with, I believe, probably one of the easiest women in the world to live with. And yet, it's still complex. It still takes a lot of work because she has to live with me, right? All right no amens, all right? No amens. That's just how it works. But there is no such thing, there's no such thing as the idea that there is a perfect family. I got to thinking several months ago about how TV has kind of led us to believe that, hasn't it? That uh, there are perfect families. At least back in the day, back in the day, we could have issues, we could have problems, and yet 30 minutes later, it was all solved. And I think we bought into the idea, some of us growing up, that that's the way family works. You know, we'll have conflicts, but in 30 minutes, we'll solve them. And life will go back as it should be. See if you remember some of these. Sing along with me. Who was bringing up three very lovely girls? Songs that made the hit parade. Now some of you should sing. Boys like us, we had it made. to the modern family. Now we can tell a lot about you based on how many of those shows you actually watched uh, when they were current, right? How many are Leave it to Beaver people? I love Lucy. All right. Some of you, you're in denial. You know that that's where you are. Then some of us joined the crowd about at the Brady Bunch. You've heard me give my testimony. Loved the show. Fantastic. And then some of you joined the crowd about All in the Family, somewhere right around in there. We thought that was the way that it was, right? It's amazing that as I look back at 50 years of family-type sitcoms, it's amazing how we've gone from, yes, there are problems that a family has, but Marcia will figure out her love life by the end of the show. We will solve everything, put it all neatly back together and package it, and everything will be good. Till we got to, I believe, we got to All in the Family, and we just realized that Archie Bunker, that dude was dysfunctional. And there was nothing that we were going to do to change that. And so every show would end basically with Archie and eat it, eat it. She's still dysfunctional, right? That's just the way that it was. 
And then we got to Roseanne, it was even more in our face that, hey, that's just the way it is. We talk a certain way to one another and that's just acceptable. We treat one another a certain way, but we love each other until all the way up to our appropriately titled modern family. I've become convinced of this, that most of us got to the point where we solved everything and and we kind of knew that dysfunction existed, but we kind of tried to solve it, neatly package it. And then we got to the point where we just said, hey, everybody is dysfunctional and we'll just kind of live with that. And since everybody's that way, we'll just kind of kind of be okay with it. And the truth is that many of us grew up in incredibly dysfunctional homes. Unless we just blame what you grew up in Many of us are currently living in families that really could be characterized, if we were honest, as dysfunctional. And if we're honest, our attitude is most often that it's okay as long as we look okay from the outside. In other words, if we come to church and everybody thinks that we've got it all together, everybody thinks that we love each other and that we're happy with our kids and they're happy with us and we love our in-laws and they haven't become outlaws and all of that, that, that we're just okay. Some of us do it that way. And then there's others of us that we live this way. This is most of you, that you know it's not okay, but you've come to the conclusion that really it is okay. In fact, it doesn't even exist if I don't acknowledge it. And so you listen to people talk about their marriages And they talk as if everything is happy and great, when in fact, it's really not. You listen to kids talk about their parents, and sometimes their parents are great, when in fact, they're not. You listen to parents talk about their kids, and their kids are the next thing next to Mother Teresa, but they're really not. Here's the truth of the matter. God designed family to reflect his love, his grace, and yes, his joy. You know, God wants your family to be a happy place whether that is your nuclear family there with just husband and wife and kids or a single parent and kids or it's your extended family, God wants there to be joy, but relationships are messy and they, and they take a lot of work. And anytime there's more than one person that's involved, conflict, have you realized this? Conflict is inevitable. There's going to be conflict. We're naturally selfish. Did anybody have to teach you how to be selfish? No. I watched all three of my kids come into this world and I never once taught them how to be selfish and yet they are all, if left unattended, outside of the guiding spirit of God in their life, they are selfish and so are their parents. And we are broken by the fall and that makes relationships difficult. And to simply ignore those conflicts and the dysfunction in our family relationships, I believe, is to give in to the idea that that's just the way that it is As we've seen on the TV screen in the last 20 or 30 years, that's just the way that it is and there's nothing we can do about it. So we will just simply survive rather than getting into a situation where we actually thrive as God wants it to be in our families. I can tell you this after more than 25 years uh, as a pastor, I've come to understand that there is no pain that that cuts as deeply as family pain. Probably none. Pain caused by conflict in marriages. I know, by the way, I know even as I sit up here this morning and as I am going to open up the word to you here in just a few moments, I know that there are many of you that are here this morning, husbands and wives, and there's conflict in your marriage right now. 
you might have had conflict on the way here. If we could get your grade school kids off to the side, they'd tell us exactly what happened, all right? Middle school, high schoolers, they kind of learn how to cover for you a little bit, but, but we know that, right? There's conflict in marriage. There's conflict between parents and kids. There's kids that think their life would be okay if they had somebody else's parents, only to recognize that those kids are wishing they had their parents and life would be okay. There's conflict there. Jerry's gonna talk about that a little bit next week and, and we're gonna talk about it the following week. There's conflict between adult children. You say, not adult children, because my parents told me this. One day you're gonna love her, didn't they? One day you're gonna wish you hadn't said that. And it never came, right? <laughs> no. One day you're gonna put your arm around her and you're gonna hug her. Nope, that never happened. There's conflicts with adult children. I'm amazed at what I deal with in a, in a counseling situation. Even recently, dealing with conflict between siblings after their parents have left this earth and left a will that they didn't like and they go and get attorneys and they sue one another. There's conflict. There's conflict with in-laws. There's conflict, by the way, some of you I recognize are single parents. Some of you are, uh, are, are, have previously been in a relationship and you have conflict with your former husband or your former wife. Some of you kids are dealing with situations where you come from a, a, a broken family and you're dealing with conflict with your natural mom and dad or your stepmom and dad. There's relationships with aging parents that are strained, aging parents that have an expectation on us to care for them, and yet we don't feel like that's our responsibility, and as a result of that, conflict is caused. There's conflict with extended families. Well, this morning, what I want to talk about is the origin of the dysfunctional family. And I'm going to do that in 29 minutes and 39 seconds, all right? I'm going to solve all of your problems, all of these things that you've ever wondered about. I'm going to give you the origin. But as some of you have been around Northwest for any length of time know, I don't want to get up here and just expose a problem. There's nothing worse to me than when I listen to one of my favorite pastors on a podcast or something and they expose a problem and I go, oh, no, the world's falling apart. And they don't tell me what to do about it, all right? We're going to land the plane with me telling you what you can do about it and how to begin the process of restoration in those relationships. Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you have them, to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. And I'm going to read this text to you. I'm going to be reading out of the ESV. And James asked the question in verse 1 of chapter 4. He asked this question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights amongst you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Notice, by the way, those words, you, your, and you. Verse 2. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. There we go. Let's close our Bibles and pray. That's where it comes from, right there, isn't it? It's us. We're the reason. If there were no us, we would have no problems. Pastors once said, you know, I'd love the ministry if it weren't for people. How stupid is that? You'd love the ministry if there weren't people. If there were no people, there'd be no ministry. It's us. We create the problems. In the Greek, this word in verse 1 that's translated in our English text as passions is the word from which we get our English word hedonism. 
It's the belief that pleasure is the chief good in life. Pleasure is the chief good in life. Its primary sense here in this particular text is pleasures. It's what makes me happy. What is best for me and not for you. This whole passage, in fact, if we had time to really dive in a little bit deeper, we would discover this, that that it oozes with the frustration and disappointment of unrestrained pleasure-seeking. As I have studied over these texts the last few weeks, I've become convinced that this is so very true. And even for me, I've said, boy, if I could grasp just these things I'm going to give you this morning, and you'd think if I'm going to give them to you that I'm an expert in them. No, I'm right along the same path walking with you, all right? But if I could just grasp these things, because at the end of the day, that's where problems come from, the frustration and disappointment of unrestrained pleasure-seeking. I believe that I should enjoy a certain life. I believe that certain things should be true of my surroundings and the people that are going to be in my life. They should treat me a certain way. They should do these things for me. And if they do, everything is fine. If they don't, which they regularly don't, then there's conflict. There's hostility. There is, in this text, there's war. So here is the summary of those two verses. You want, literally, you lust for things. You lust for something, but you don't get it, so you kill. Now, some of you stop right there and go, hey, I'd never get to that point. I would never, ever, ever kill somebody. Now, the idea is that you're frustrated and you will do literally just up until the point where in some cases, because you want what you want and you deserve that you should have what you want, you will get just up to that point. And then you covet, you literally hotly desire something, but you cannot have what you want, so you're frustrated. And in frustration, you do what? We quarrel and we fight. Now you stop for just a moment and you think about any conflict in your life, and I guarantee you it originated because of selfishness. One theologian, in fact, said it this way, the frantic pleasure-first life inevitably goes after that which cannot satisfy. Isn't that what we do? We go after that which cannot satisfy, convinced in our minds that if we just get this, husbands, that if she just looked this way, if she would just treat me this way, if she just let me sit there and watch football for 12 hours on a Saturday, unrestrained, put food in front of me and a cold beverage next to that food, everything would be okay. But since she doesn't, therefore I'm frustrated and we quarrel and we fight. You think about that with your kids. If they meet your expectations, if they do what you think they ought to do and they neatly fit into your paradigm for their life, then there's no problem. Kids, think about it the same way, right? If your parents do exactly what you want them to do, they buy you what you want, they take you where you want to go, everything is what? It's great, right? It's awesome. The problem comes when they don't do that. and That's when we quarrel and fight. It's that frantic pleasure first life that inevitably goes after that which cannot satisfy. I read this this week and I thought this was interesting. An intriguing experiment, get this, true story, all right? You can check this out, I know some of you will. It shows that a male butterfly will ignore a living female butterfly of his own species in favor of a painted cardboard one. If the cardboard one is big, and if the cardboard one is bigger than he is, bigger than any female butterfly ever could be, the male butterfly jumps on that piece of cardboard. Really, seriously. I watched it this week. It hadn't, I didn't watch it, but I do believe this. And nearby, the real living female butterfly opens and closes her wings in vain, trying to get his attention while he is attracted to that which is bigger but is fake. 
Now, this is, this is a lesson for three weeks from now when we talk about marriages, but let me tell you. I heard somebody once say, there's a reason why the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. Okay, you know why the grass is greener on the other side of the fence? If you don't, do a Google search sometime and you'll figure that out. Things are not always as they appear. And yet, we live our lives thinking, if I can just have that, if I can just be with that person, if they'll just treat me this way, then things will be better. Not to, not to come to find out that it is just cardboard. It's not real. And so we, at the very core, as a result of our sin nature, we are selfish people. Now, you don't have to convince me of that. I know that I am selfish. I, I have a very, very clear idea. My wife, if she were honest and and publicly sometimes she's not because she covers for me, but if she were really honest, she would tell you, man, I got just everything ought to be a certain way. I mean, pictures ought to be on the wall in a certain way. The table ought to be set a certain way and there are incredible expectations because I am selfish and the way that I think it ought to be is the way that it ought to be and when it's not that way, guess what? We have quarrels and we have fights. It's because of selfishness. It's because I'm me-centered so what happens as a result of that? Well, offense occurs. We, we do something. We do something to harm somebody or they do something to harm us. And these selfish attitudes which long for our own pleasure produce conflict and that conflict unresolved produces bitterness and broken relationships. Relationships that were meant to be enjoyed and not simply tolerated. I really wish you would grasp a hold of that today. God does not want your relationships just simply to be tolerated. If you're here this morning and as parents, you have a strained relationship with your kids and you've bought into the idea of, well, that's just the way that adolescence is. We're just gonna continue to lock horns and then one day they'll kind of figure it out and they'll, in other words, they'll see things my way and all of a sudden we'll have relationships. Shame on you. You should be enjoying these kids right now. These are some of the best years of their life right now, and you should be enjoying them. And if you've bought into the idea, husbands and wives, well, that's just the way that it is. And yeah, I said I'd live with her for the rest of my life till death do me part, and she is gonna be the death of me yet, so it probably won't be too long, and I'm just gonna tolerate it, I'm just gonna put up with it. Shame on you. God doesn't want that for you. God wants you to be happy God wants you to enjoy your marriage. He didn't cre create marriage to be a drudgery for you. And if you feel that way about your adult siblings or about your aging parents, I say, I hope that you will walk away from this series and say, God wants something different for me in my relationship. He created me to be in relationship with other people, to be in this place, and he wants more for me. And so how do we fix them? Well, take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 18 real quickly. Jesus actually gave us instructions. In James chapter 4, James is saying, hey, where do these things come from? Don't they come from all these quarrels? And James is exposing a lot of problems in chapter 4 there. I love how when we take where the, where the origin of the dysfunction came from and we go into the New Testament where in, in this particular case in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is teaching his great sermon on the mount. Jesus gives us instruction on how we respond to conflicts. Now, there's two things we're going to talk about here in the next, next few minutes. 
when we've caused feelings of resentment in another because we've wronged them and we know they're hurt, okay? That's one possibility. You're the offender. You caused the pain. You caused the hurt in the relationship. You caused the brokenness. That's one scenario. Then the second one is, and this is the one where we tend to go, well, hey, I'm just going to sit back because this is not my problem. They did this to me, and as a result of that, they owe me an apology. They know where I live. They know my email address. We're Facebook friends. And so we sit back, and you wait for the apology to come. That is when we feel resentment to someone else who has hurt us because of some wrongdoing. They've offended us, and now we're left with the consequences of resentment and bitterness. And again, be careful, because in that one, so often we think, well, that doesn't involve my forgiveness. They need to come to me. They need to take the first step. They offended me. They hurt me. Either way, here's what I want you to see. Either one of those scenarios, we have a responsibility to respond properly to the situation. We have a responsibility. It's always our move. Doing nothing is not acceptable. Okay? That's the premise. Doing nothing is not acceptable. So if you're here this morning and you know you have dysfunction in relationships, whether they be family relationships or other relationships and in this church body or at work or at school or in your neighborhood or wherever it may be, it is always our move and doing nothing is unacceptable. And so Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, he's preaching to the people that are sitting on the hillside. And in verse 23, he says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gifts there and before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And let me give you a little bit of context. Before Jesus died on the cross, the way in which people were required to make amends for their sin was to bring an animal sacrifice. They would bring a little lamb. That lamb would have its throat slit. That blood would be shed. And as a result, that represented their sincerity. Not only their sincerity, but that, that animal also was a scapegoat for their sin. That's what this means. In our day and age, what it would mean, so before you come to church, say, uh-oh, trying to think back to what your conversations were like when you were in the car or what they were last night before you went to bed. Before you come to church, before you get ready to pray, you should think about, and if you remember that you've hurt someone else or you've offended them and caused them pain, now this could be anyone, but most often it's the most difficult to make things right with people that are the closest to us, and those would be our family members, right? Anybody else have no problem apologizing to somebody that's not your family member, but when it comes to your family member, there's just something that makes it a lot more difficult? Am I the only one? I, I can apologize to just about anybody. You know, the, 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 the guy in the store that, you know, I, whatever, I, I am sorry for that. But when it comes to my wife, when it comes to my siblings, when it comes to my kids, that's a lot more difficult. But whatever comes to your mind where you've offended and you've hurt somebody, what do we do when we remember that we've done something to hurt someone else? Look again at verse 24. We leave, we go, and then we're reconciled, and then we come and worship. Some of you wonder why you come in here and you look around at other people and they seem to be, man, they're, they're really engaged in worship, and man, they're really thankful for what God's done in their life, and, and it's just a, a great experience for them, and you kind of sit there and you're you're ticked. In fact, you're looking at them going, don't sing so loud. You don't really sing that well. Anyway, stop. You know, and you're looking around and you're just bitter and you're angry and you're resentful and you wonder why that is. Can I suggest to you that there's a possibility that it's because 
you know that you have been offensive, you have a fractured relationship with somebody, but you've not been willing to leave your sacrifice at the altar and to go and be reconciled with them. This word reconcile, by the way, means to work through a process to change, to make things better, to make things as they should be. Seeing to it that the one that we've hurt, that we've caused pain, seeing to it that their hurt is made well. And we go to them face-to-face in the right time without casting any blame on that person or justifying your actions. That's hard to do, isn't it? It's not very difficult for me to go, and, and, and you've heard me say this, our son Jordan, who's uh, just turned 22, Jordan, when he was little, he used to do this. He'd do something really wrong, and he would go, sorry. And we look at him and we go, well, and in fact, I remember saying several times with my dad to me, sorry doesn't cut it, right? Sorry doesn't cut it, whatever that means. But he'd say, sorry didn't, and I'd go, sorry? Yeah, sorry. Come on, let's go play catch. I'm like, sorry? Okay, that's one way. The other way is when you go, uh, hey, well, I want you to know that I would like you to forgive me and I'm sorry for this. And then we use that little transitional word and it is what? Oh, you're such a smart congregation. We say, but. In other words, I did this and I'm sorry, but if you hadn't done this and you hadn't said this and as a result of this, that's the ways in that I am, the way that I am because of you. Yeah, some of you are going, amen, yes. Yes, it's all the people around me that treat me that way, but not I. No, that's what we do. And as a result, they didn't hear anything that you said past but, and in fact, you just now canceled out what you said before but. You go face to face in the right time and you don't make any excuses. You own it, you confess it, and you ask them to forgive you. And they may or may not do that. That's their issue. But we have to go. Sometimes we have the attitude that we'll just make things right with God. You ever do that? I'll just make things with God. After all, he's the sovereign one, right? I mean, they're a sinner just like me. They, they've done things, so I'll just make things right with God. So we pray to God, God, please forgive me for saying what I said to my wife. You know the way she is. And, and we close the prayer, and we think everything's okay. Well, well I, I heard Chuck Swindoll preaching on the topic of forgiveness, and, and he said this. If we think that all we need to do is confess our sin to God, it would be like me this morning going out and getting in my little yellow Miata and, and just as I'm getting ready to back out of the parking place, you come by in your $80,000 brand new red leather Mercedes Benz coupe with black leather and I bash right into the side of you and, and I get out and I begin to pray, God, please forgive me for that. That was very, very stupid. I thank you for your, for your forgiveness, amen. And then I look up and you're standing there and you say, hey, just want you to know I've already taken care of it. Have a nice day. And I walk away, right? You're going, wait, what a second. God gave me that Mercedes Benz. It's entrusted to me. You have violated me. You need to make it right with me. It's just as ridiculous. It's a hard thing to do though. But we have to own it. I'll never forget. About uh, probably 12 years ago, I was uh, at home in Omaha with uh, my dad, and some of you have heard me tell my story about my dad. He was diagnosed with a brain tumor at age 41 and basically lived in, uh, physically in a hellish state for the next 18 to 20 years. And he had a lot of time to think. His mind was with him all the way up until his last breath. He had a lot of time to think. And um, I remember that day very, very vividly as if it were last night. I had said goodbye to him in a hospital room and I prayed with him and I turned around to leave and for whatever reason I turned around and when I turned around I noticed that there were tears coming out of his eyes. 
and I went back over to the bed, and I was already crying because I just had a hard time leaving him because I never knew each time that I left that that might be the last time that I'd, that I'd see him. And I looked at him, and I'm crying, and he's crying, and I'm not used to that. That makes me very uncomfortable because he never shed a tear growing up. He was pretty hard that way. And I said to him, what's wrong? And he said, I have failed you as a father. I failed you. I have not been the dad that I should have been. And he said, I'd like for you to forgive me for that. I'm telling you, there's probably not been a moment in my life that was as significant as that particular moment when my dad owned the fact that he had failed in some areas and he asked me to forgive him. I've been there, haven't you? I've been there this week several times <laughs> where I needed to own what I had done. I know what it feels like to offend. Does anyone come to your mind right now, even as I talk, someone that you know you have a strained relationship with in your family, whether that's your spouse, whether that's your parents, whether that's your kids, whether that's your in-laws, whether that's your adult siblings, whether that's the siblings that you're living with currently in a home situation? I want to challenge you, as Jesus said in Matthew 5, to leave, to go, and to be reconciled and then come to God. Attending church or learning Bible verses or reading books was never going to fix the problem. We have to leave, go, and reconcile. That's what we need to do. Heard a lady say this week, you need to fess your mess. <laughs> That's probably where it is, right? If you mess up, fess up. Now here's the second scenario. You're the one that's been hurt. Turn to Matthew chapter 18. You're the one that's been hurt. In Matthew 18, verse 21, we spend a lot of time, by the way, earlier in Matthew 18, some of us do because we like to talk about church discipline and confrontation and all of that. But then when it gets down to verse 21, where it's real practical for our own personal lives, sometimes we kind of set that aside. Look at verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, some of you will remember that Peter was often the disciple that asked Jesus questions that other people were thinking but didn't have the guts to ask, right? John MacArthur calls him the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. I think uh, he very often gets a bad rap because probably other people had wondered this. Like, how many times does this numbskull have to do this to me and I have to, and I have to go and ask them to forgive me? We're not told here in this passage, by the way, who Peter was talking about. It's kind of fun to speculate, isn't it? You know, if he'd had a rough time with his wife, and he's going, that woman! So I, 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 how many times do I have to forgive her? Now what you need to understand is that the rabbis had been teaching people that it was three times. You forgave three times, and after three times, we're just done, right? You don't deserve to be in a relationship with me. And so I'm sure that Peter, as he's asking Jesus this question, and he goes, hey, how about seven times? He thought, that's pretty good. I mean, look at me, Jesus. I'm really getting it. You think I'm a hardhead, but I'm listening and I'm getting it. And so he said, I'll multiply what the rabbi said times two and add one for good measure. I will go seven times. And Jesus said, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. Peter's at least asking the right questions. When Jesus told Peter, by the way, that I tell you not seven times, but 77 times, he didn't mean that on the 78th time we go, okay, that's it. Even Jesus said, after 77, you are done. The idea here is that we never stop forgiving. We never stop forgiving. And then Jesus tells a story. I like that. 
For, for some of you that think that we should never tell stories or use personal illustrations, but we should just stick in the book. Hey, this is what Jesus did. This is how Jesus preached. Jesus got up, told a story and went, you go do the same thing. And then he walked off, all right? At least, you know, we try to give you a little bit more explanation. This is what Jesus did. And he was the master teacher. People were amazed at his teaching, it says, after the Sermon on the Mount. He tells them a story, verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, to contextualize, you say, well, how many, what, how many is that? Well, it's about, scholars believe it's about 9 million ounces of gold. Now, think about that. At $1,200 an ounce, I figured it out that it would be $10.8 billion. Let's just say it's more money than that servant had or he ever would have. It's beyond our comprehension, which is precisely what Jesus wants to make as his point, that it was an astronomical debt that this slave owed to his master. Look at verse 25. And since he couldn't pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and the payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. The master of the slave felt compassion. Just like Jesus feels for you and for me and he gave him grace and he released him of the debt. Don't you wish you could bank at a place like that? I bank at Wells Fargo, but I would let them go in a, in a, in a heartbeat. If you told me that your bank, you just went in and gone, hey, got in a little over my head, not gonna be able to make that mortgage payment, not gonna be able to make that car payment, fall on my knees, please forgive that debt. And they went, all right, we're gonna show you grace and mercy. How many of you'd bank there? Yeah, yeah, you would. Because that's an awesome, awesome thing. And that's what grace is. That's what grace is. Grace is me getting something that I don't deserve and I could never earn and I never have the ability to repay it. And that's what we enjoy and what gives us hope as followers of Jesus. That is, that's vertical forgiveness. That's the $10.8 billion debt, a debt that we couldn't possibly pay on our own. And yet at Calvary, that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He erased that debt. And now we're gonna talk about how do we interact then horizontally with that same grace when we're in relationship with other flawed people on this planet. Look at verse 28. We'll see what the servant did. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay me what you owe me. This man goes and finds his fellow servant who owes him 100 denarii. A denarii was about a day's wage. And if we look at a day's wage for a common laborer, that was approximately a third of a year's wage then that he owed him. In our terms, it may be, scholars believe, maybe, maybe he owed him somewhere between three and $5,000, which was not an insignificant debt. And yet at the same time, when you compare it to $10.8 billion, wasn't very much. So hypothetically, he had been forgiven $10.8 billion, yet demanded that he receive the three to $5,000 that this friend of his owed him. Verse 29, so his fellow servant fell down just as he had done with his master and pleaded with him, have patience with me. I will pay you back. Look at his response, verse 30. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When the man with the smaller debt begged him to forgive him, he said no and he demanded and as a result of him not paying it, he threw the man into prison. And unfortunately, as is always true, and it was true back in Bible times, obviously when Jesus was talking about this, when he gave this story, somebody always is watching. Somebody always sees what we do. 
Verse 31 says, when his fellow servants saw what, he had, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. That word translated jailers, by the way, means to subject to severe distress. It's the pain experienced by being tormented. And that's what happens, my friends, when we do not forgive. There's torment. We live in bitterness and resentment and sometimes to the point of anger and even severe hostility. For some of us, that's why we can't sleep. That's why we get angry. That's why we're unsettled. That's why we have no joy because at some point, whether it was in your childhood, whether it was in your, your uh, student years, whether it was when you graduated from college or even currently, somebody has done something to you and they've not made it right. And as a result, you are bitter, you are angry, you are resentful and you have no joy. Notice what Jesus says God's response is to the one who's been forgiven much, like you and I, and yet refuses to forgive others. Verse 35, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you don't forgive your brother from the heart. The point is obvious. There can be no limit to forgiving others since God has infinitely forgiven us. If we've truly come into a relationship with Jesus, then we should be continually becoming like him. And becoming like him means that we forgive other people horizontally those three to $5,000 debts as we have been forgiven vertically that $10.8 billion debt that we owed that we couldn't possibly pay on our own. And here's the truth of the matter. Those of you here this morning and you call yourself followers of Jesus, you are Christians, you read your Bible, you pray, you do all of those things that, that you think should mark your life. If your life is not characterized by being a forgiver, then you should rightly question whether or not you truly have a legitimate, authentic, saving relationship with Jesus Christ. The only sure proof that a person has received God's forgiveness through faith in Jesus is that he have a transformed and a changed life. And that awareness should humble us that we'd have no other option but to simply forgive others as we have been forgiven. Oftentimes we say things that we can forgive but we can't forget. You ever say that? Well, I'll forgive you but I will never forget. That's kind of one of those lines, right? We learn it young and we live by it. And yet forgiveness is not that doesn't mean that we forget the offense or the details of the offense as if to voluntarily accept a case of amnesia. Some people say, well, if you forgive like God forgives, it says he removes our, our sins as far as the east is from the west and he remembers them no more. Well, if you ever think about that, I mean, God is, God is all-knowing. He is omniscient. He knows everything, right? He's not forgetting. What is, it, what is he doing? He is choosing not to hold that against us, right? Very different. Very different than I just go, what? Oh, I didn't realize that you did that to me. Huh. You said you were sorry. I didn't really. That's not that. It's I choose not to hold that against you any longer. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness means to cease to feel resentment, to excuse another person for a fault, and to give up on the idea of getting even. It also means to give up on all desire to seek revenge. Any of you like me? I love revenge. You know, I love those movies where something bad happens right at the beginning of the movie. And somebody walks in and he goes, 
You know, I will. And, and, and then the whole, the rest of the movie is him getting revenge. It's the way we're wired. You say, well, what happens if I don't forgive? Because you don't understand what's happened to me. You don't understand what happened to me when I was a kid. You don't understand the abuse, physical, sexual, whatever else. You don't understand what my parents did to me. You don't understand what my spouse has done to me, Brian. And if you lived with this woman, you would have a very different view. You don't understand what my older siblings, how they've treated me, how they've maligned me. You don't under, well, here's what happens if you don't forgive as you've been forgiven. You demonstrate that you have probably not truly come to know Jesus as your Savior and receive that new nature like Jesus, which is by its nature to forgive like he forgives. I also know that if you choose not to forgive, it will lead to bitterness and resentment. You will become a bitter, resentful, angry person. That's just what you'll become. And then lastly, just in my little list here, you will lose the joy of relationships. I feel sorry for those that are with us this morning and you've got those conflicts in your life and you refuse to forgive or to ask for forgiveness. You refuse to resolve conflict. And so therefore you live in dysfunctional relationship. I feel sorry for you. You know why? Because you are missing the greatest joy that God intended us to have on this planet. And that is to be in relationship as families, as husbands and wives, parents to enjoy their kids, kids to enjoy their parents, kids to enjoy one another as brothers and sisters. Nobody ever became better by not forgiving, by refusing to forgive, never. And so here's what I know to be true. It's always our move. It's always our move. If I've done it, I need to go. I need to make it right. If I'm harboring bitterness, I simply need to forgive. You say, well, I'll forgive when they come and they get down on their knee. Nope. No, you just choose to forgive. I'm not going to hold it against you. I don't know where you might be in your relationships this morning, whether you're holding something against one of your family members or you're well aware that you've done something to harm somebody else. But I do know this, and I want you to get this if you get nothing else right at the beginning of this series, that the key to restoration of these relationships is forgiveness. That is where rebuilding always begins. It begins with forgiveness. I'm not simply saying, hey, just forgive and forget and go on. Wives, so he had an affair. I forgive you. Let's just go on. No, no, you got some stuff to work through. All right? But I'm saying it always begins with forgiveness. Your lack of forgiveness may trace back to a sibling rivalry that was allowed to go on until finally it led to bullying and all kinds of other abuse. Maybe it came from a father or a, a stepfather or a mother or a stepmother. Maybe you've been offended and hurt and wounded by an ex-wife or husband and you lie awake in bed at night and when their face comes into your mind, you have hatred towards them because of what they have done to you. I don't know what your story may be, but I know there are countless stories all over this auditorium and it's doubtful that there's anybody who has not been hurt or hurt somebody else. But I want you to understand this, life's not fair. Bad things happen in a fallen world that you and I live in, and especially in families. But regardless of those details, I want, it clear, I want to make it clear to you this morning that to key, the key to us moving on in those relationships is forgiveness. To forgive someone who has hurt you or to seek forgiveness from someone that you have hurt. That's the key word for families is forgiveness. The Apostle Paul said it when he wrote to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, 
tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. You say, what do we, you know, what do we do with that? Well, I, I, I got to believe, I grabbed some people after the first service. By the way, if you're new here, I don't usually do that, but sometimes I do. I just, you, you know, I know, I know there's hurt. I know there's pain in family relationships right now. I deal with situations almost on a weekly basis. Uh, Matt and I do, and Jerry will be soon after he gets over his honeymoon. We deal with people on a regular basis that are hurting. Marriages, parents with their kids, kids with their parents. I deal with adults who are struggling with their adult siblings. And you know, family counselors are making a fortune in the triangle area because there's conflict. It's not just outside of the church, it's inside of the church. And I want so much for us to have right relationships. I want marriages at Northwest to thrive, not just survive and just make it till death do you part. I want them to thrive. I want parents, I want you to enjoy these kids. Because trust me, as a dad that's had to send two to college and struggling watching football alone on Saturdays, that day's coming. I want you to enjoy them. And kids, I want you to enjoy your parents. They're not perfect. We're going to talk about them in two weeks. I mean, they, they, they screw up all the time. I'm one of them. But I want you to enjoy them because that's the way God intended for it to be. Life is too short on this earth. And if you know Jesus is your Savior and we get to heaven, we are going to live in perfect relationship. But as I said to a friend of mine many years ago, I don't want to wait till then to have relationship. I want to work things out. I want to live in the relationship that God created me to live in, not just vertically, but horizontally as well. And as one of your pastors, I so want that for you as well. But it does begin with forgiveness. Whether you need to extend it or you need to ask that it be extended to you, that's where it all begins. I challenge you not to let another week go by. Some of you ought to go home and you ought to start busting up the phone lines, the Facebook messaging, whatever it is you got to do. Because in the world we live in, it's not too difficult, no matter where somebody is in the world, to make contact with them almost instantly. And you need to make things right. And it begins at home. Husbands and wives, moms and dads, kids. It extends out from there. And as we're right horizontally, as Matthew 5 says, as Jesus was preaching at the Sermon on the Mount, we'll be right vertically as well. And we'll be where God wants us to be. Let's pray. God, thanks for your word. It's cut me up, diced me pretty good this week. But I'm thankful for that. God, I don't ever want to be in a place where I am content to be dysfunctional in my family relationships, my relationships with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't ever want to get comfortable with that. So God, I pray that you would give me, that you'd give others in this body that I love so deeply. I pray that you'd give us the humility to extend forgiveness where it needs to be extended, even if it's not asked for. And God, where we've been wrong, where we've hurt people, sometimes even unintentionally, but we've hurt them, I pray that you'd give us the humility to go and to seek forgiveness. And God, we're so thankful for the $10.8 billion debt that we've been forgiven pretty confident we can find it in our hearts to forgive the $3,000 little debts that other people have racked up with us. 
God, make us that kind of people. Make us that kind of a church that understands grace and forgiveness. We pray in Jesus' name.